Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you here today, and I'm especially happy to see uh, a good crew from Turtle Mountain Bible Camp has decided to come and join us in worship this morning. I know that you've probably got more stories to share from this week alone than I have, so maybe I should get you guys to come up and just talk for a while, and I'm sure we'd be blessed by it. I know that every week has its own unique challenges, but also God stories of how he comes through in those challenges. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing some more of of those from you. We're praying for you, and we know that God's going to work through you at camp. And uh, Chris already shared with me this morning that he had one of those cabins that uh, involved having to fill out, uh, I believe, a CFS form. Yeah, I've been there. Not not those situations you want to be involved in, but uh, often it's amazing how God works through tough tough spots like that. And uh, one of the things that we know is that there's so many children coming from very difficult, very difficult circumstances, very tough backgrounds, and so when when you know they're coming to Bible camp, that's often the only place in their lives that they actually experience love, or they actually have people who care about them, um, who share with them God's love. And you guys are on the front row, uh, the front front of the, the action there. And so we want to lift you up and, and bless you as well. So we're thankful to be able to stand behind people like you. So God bless you as you're serving. Let's now uh, bow and pray God's blessing on his word. Thank you, Father, for your many blessings in our lives. They are too many to count, but we thank you. Uh, for the things that come uh, foremost to our minds, Lord, we thank you for, for health, we thank you for safety, we thank you, Lord, even for the, the rain that you've sent, we thank you for protection in the storm last night, we thank you, God, for the way that you have brought comfort and, uh, Lord, healing to those who have gone through loss, we continue to think of the Reimer family for Barry and Nancy, and, and uh, Lord, for Nancy's brother, Lord. We continue to pray for him as he grieves the loss of his wife. Uh, We pray for continued strength and comfort there, Lord, and we thank you for how you've already provided. We also thank you, Lord, for how you've provided for Anna Dick this past week as she underwent an operation. We thank you for bringing her safely through and that she's here with us this morning, and so we just pray, Lord, for your continued hand of healing upon her and to strengthen her. So thank you for that, Lord. We thank you as well for the great work that you are doing at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp, and we thank you that some of those servants who are in the front front lines right now, Lord, are here with us this morning, and we just want to pray your great blessing upon them to strengthen and equip them, Lord, energize them, um, give them physical strength and stamina. I know that a lot of late nights and difficult situations can uh, begin to take a toll, so just energize them, Lord, today. Uh, by your word and through your spirit, that they're ready to go again uh, for the next batch of campers uh, just in a very short time. So bless them, Lord, and give them safety. And mo- most importantly, we pray that you would do a great work in young, uh, young lives, Lord, that they'd be touched by your love. We pray that you would bind the enemy and that your hand and your power would prevail. Now this morning, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak through it to us. Would you energize us by it, Lord? Convict us of areas of our lives that need to change, where there is sin that is brought to the forefront, Lord, that we would be quick to repent of it, to turn away from it, and turn towards you. And so we pray that by this you would build us up, Lord, according to your word and your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for those of you who weren't 
at last Sunday's service, part one of our sermon series on David, a man after God's heart. Let me just give you some quick background as we continue our series. Last week we learned that because of King Saul's pride and disobedience, God had rejected him as king and had now searched the land for a man after his own heart. And in this search throughout the land, he found David, the runt of the litter. He was the youngest boy in a large family that everyone overlooked. He was given the job that no one else wanted, which was to be out in the wilderness tending the sheep. And throughout the story, we see that David's brothers overlook him, his own father overlooks him, and even the high priest Samuel overlooks him in the lineup of the young sons of David. And so this is some of the background of David as we continue in our text this morning. Eleanor Roosevelt once said this, One's philosophy is not best expressed in words, it is expressed in the choices one makes. In the long run, we shape our lives and we shape ourselves. The process never ends until the day we die, and the choices we make are ultimately our responsibility. And now this morning, we will continue to see the power of personal choice in the converging stories of Saul and David. On the one side, we see that David's star is on the rise, while Saul is continuing in his downward spiral. And it all comes down to the choices that they make day by day, situation by situation. Saul reminds us of another man, an American lawyer of the 19th century named Aaron Burr. Some of you might be familiar with the name when you recognize the name of his most famous incident was a pistol duel with another rival of his named Alexander Hamilton. This occurred when Burr and his rival Alexander Hamilton could no longer tolerate each other's insults and the rivalry and finally Burr challenged him to a duel. But after the pistol duel occurred and Hamilton had been killed in the duel, Burr discovered that people no longer trusted him. Fancy that. Everything he did following that event, that fateful day, everything he tried to do withered at his touch. He traveled abroad, but he could find no acceptance. Everywhere he went, whether England, France, to the Midwest, every practice he tried to establish flopped and failed. At length, he returned to New York in disguise, landing at night so that no one might recognize him. His wife had already left him several years earlier, and now he was all alone. He rented a small room in the basement of a boarding house from which he planned to resume his practice of law. But only a few people sought his services, even not knowing who he was. And he remained there until death relieved him of his loneliness. But what only compounds the tragedy is that Aaron Burr is still thought to this day to be the most brilliant person ever to have received a degree from Princeton University. However, like Saul, Burr turned his back on God. For when there had been a mighty move of God's Spirit that had swept through the Princeton campus, and hundreds of students, literally hundreds, were surrendering their lives to Christ, Burr shut himself in his room to wrestle with the issues concerning the Lord Jesus' claim and his own eternal salvation. And he had decided that night that the call of Christ was too costly, and it would stand in the way of his personal ambitions. And so according to tradition, late one night, Burr had thrown open the shutters of his windows and yelled to the heavens, Goodbye, God! And from that time onward, Aaron Burr opposed Christianity. He chartered his own course and forfeit the only possibility of peace that had ever been offered to him. 
And so he forfeit his life, just as Saul forfeit his kingdom. You see, our lives are the sum of our decisions and our choices. The choices that we make for God, or the choices that we make against God. And often in life, we tend to view many choices that we make as neutral, and having no ramifications one way or the other. And I'm sure there are some that perhaps fall in that category, but the reality is that each day we make choices. You made a choice this morning to get up to come to church. For some of you, that was easier than for others. I know for those of you working at camp, you know, sleeping in was a great temptation, but you decided to get up, make the drive, come to church. It took some effort, and yet here you are. This morning, you made a choice to be here. Monday morning, you will wake up and you will have a choice to begin your day in prayer and devotion or not. Once again, your day will be affected by that choice, for God or against God. And now, on their own, each individual choice seems rather small and insignificant. Well, it's not a big deal if I miss devotions one day. If I don't start my day in prayer one day, what's the big deal? But the more we do that, the more our lives are shaped by those daily choices, for God or against God. And then when the big moments come, when the big decisions of obedience or disobedience we are confronted with, if we have not been faithful in the little things, the big things will catch us off guard and derail us very quickly. And that is what we see happen in the life of King Saul. Following up from last week where we see that the prophet Samuel tells Saul to his face, the Lord has rejected you. He is going to call someone else, a man after his own heart. We now pick up our text in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, if you turn there with me. We begin with Saul's situation going from bad to just plain terrible. Verse 14, we read this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. I like to call this verse Saul's final wake-up call. This is his last chance to wake up repent, and turn back to God. Now, as we look back on Saul's life, we know that at the beginning of his life and call as king, the Holy Spirit had anointed him, had empowered him, but now that God had rejected Saul, his spirit was removed from Saul. Now, in the Old Testament period, the Holy Spirit's presence could be given and also be taken. And this is difficult for us New Testament believers to grasp, Because for us in this age of grace, following the day of Pentecost, we know that the moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in and abides in us continuously. And now, of course, we can grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit through our sin or disobedience, but so long as we continue by faith to believe and to follow the Lord Jesus in our profession of faith, the Spirit will not depart, He will not be taken from us. But in the Old Testament era, it was not so. And last week, we saw that King Saul had rebelled against God because of his pride. After a victory, he'd actually built a monument to himself on top of Mount Carmel. And it's because Saul chose to leave God that God's Spirit chose to leave Saul. I want you to hear this clearly, my friends. God is a gentleman. God is a gentleman. He will not stay where he is not wanted. Remember that. He will not abide where he is not welcome. God will not force his way into our lives, nor will he force us to obey him. But even though Saul rejected God, 
God still showed mercy to Saul by allowing him to remain king for the rest of his life. However, the consequence was that Saul no longer had the power and the presence of God in his life, nor did he receive any further word or direction from God from this point forward. Instead, after God's spirit was taken, it was replaced by an evil spirit that afflicted his mind and robbed him of peace. And it says it tormented him. As Kenneth Chafin wrote, There is no emptiness that compares to the life from whom God has withdrawn. And now we know that God is not the author of evil, nor does he send evil upon us. But this begs the question, how then can an evil spirit be sent from the Lord? Because it says that on multiple occasions. This is perplexing to us, isn't it? To think that God could be the one who sent an evil spirit. So how could this be? Well, it's really quite simple. Evil spirits and even Satan himself can do nothing without the Lord's permission. We look at the story of Job to see this in action, where God points out Job and Satan says to the Lord, well, you've put a hedge of protection around him. You haven't allowed me to do anything to him. And so God gives him permission up until a point to afflict Job. And so we see the same thing at play in Saul's life. God has protected him. He has anointed him. But now he has removed that protection and he has allowed an evil spirit to come and torment Saul. And so thus God is actually using this evil spirit to essentially serve his purposes. Of course the evil spirit doesn't realize that he's actually serving God's purposes. But by God allowing him to come and afflict Saul and torment him, it is doing something that God has a reason for. And what could that reason possibly be? How could this possibly be serving God's purposes? I believe that it provided Saul with one last chance, the starkest of choices. Which way will you choose? Which way will you go with your life? You knew what it was like what it was like to live with me in my spirit and in my power. But now not only has that been removed, but now you have the opposite. You have an afflicting spirit. It is the starkest of contrasts for Saul to go from being blessed and anointed by God's spirit to now being tormented by an evil spirit. And so here we see that God is providing him one last chance to repent and turn back to him. Which way would he go? Would he choose God or Satan? good or evil, heaven or hell, life or death, which would he choose? There is no middle ground here in this choice, and the choice also has to be real. Now, to give you an example of a real choice versus a not-so-real choice, let me give you an example of my son, Declan. He really likes those uh, granola bars that are coated in chocolate. Who here likes those? You know, completely coated in chocolate granola bar, those are delicious. Liam bought some of those the other day. Now, just suppose that those chocolate bars, I take them and I tell Declan, you can't eat any of these unless I give one to you. But then I take those chocolate bars, put them on the top of the cupboard shelf, and put like a lock on the cupboard doors and say, don't eat them. Then suppose I come home after work and I see, oh, you haven't eaten any of them. Good job. Let me reward you with a chocolate bar. Well, was that a real choice? Not really. He had no access or a way to get in. Although with time, I'm sure he'll figure out the lock. On the other hand, if I said, Declan, don't eat these, and if I come home and find you haven't eaten any, I'll give you one, and they're placed up on the counter, well, now that's a real choice, isn't it? 
And let's just say that the choice doesn't always go our way. <laughs> now, of course, this example may or may not be based in reality. But as we see when it comes to choices, God doesn't give us pretend choices, ones that we really have no say over. He presents us with the real choice. He leaves them out on the, on the, the kitchen counter within our grasp. And so here we see that the choice for Saul was the same. It had to be a real choice. And though it seems terribly harsh, God is actually being merciful and sending Saul a final wake-up call. And now consider, did Saul even notice that God's spirit had departed him? We know that Samson didn't notice. And so it seems obvious that though Saul may not have noticed the Holy Spirit's departure, he would definitely have noticed when an evil spirit arrived and began tormenting him. And so, if that wouldn't cause Saul to cry out to God for mercy, what would? And sadly, we see that in verse 15, the attendants of Saul can even see the vast difference between God's spirit being upon Saul and an evil spirit afflicting him. And so they recommend some music therapy to soothe his soul. Now we notice that in this, Saul receives his attendants' advice but not one word is uttered from Saul in regards to repentance, to calling for Samuel, or to crying out for God. He had made his choice. He was going to live his life as it was. And now, my friends, the application in this for us is this. When we stray from God, when we stray from his plan and purpose and calling for our lives, he loves us too much to let us go without trying absolutely everything to bring us back to himself. He loves us too much to go without a fight. And he will use even drastic measures to get our attention, to bring us back to himself. And sometimes God will even allow the enemy to attack us for a season in order to wake us up, to get our attention, to make us realize that we need him desperately. And we see Paul even using this method in the New Testament when he says, when someone who is in sin and won't repent, he says to the church, hand him over to Satan, that that might wake him up and realize that he needs to call out to God for mercy and restoration. And so this isn't for judgment, it is for mercy, to get our attention. And we see that in the life of Saul. And God works that way in our lives as well sometimes. We need a wake-up call. So perhaps this morning I need to ask you, are you like Saul right now? Are you straying from God and in need of a wake-up call? Is your pride making you believe that you can go it alone without him? That you can endure the enemy's attacks and, and, and you're fine, you don't need the Lord's help? Then let me beg you, don't make the same mistake as Saul. Repent, confess your sin, and call out upon God for mercy because he always delights in hearing a genuine call for mercy. God will not turn away from your cry for help. He would not have turned away from Saul's had Saul turned back to him. And now moving on to verse 18, we see David re-enter the story. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Now, I wonder if this attendant was female. I'm not sure because of the description. He's a fine-looking man. But I suppose that uh, even a man can tell when another guy's good-looking. I, I know it's always kind of awkward, you know, when my wife will ask me, so-and-so, you know the good-looking one? And I say, what do you mean? I, I, <laughs> this isn't something that I'm recognizing. 
But here we see that the recommendation includes even physical appearance. But it includes a lot of other things. A great recommendation saying he's a good musician, he is even a skilled warrior, he's a man of, of courage. And, and in this recommendation, we see a stark change happen from last week, where everyone's opinion seemed so low of David. Everyone overlooked him. He was the runt of the litter. And so now suddenly someone notices that he's got a lot going for him. And now we aren't certain how much time has passed from David's anointing to this moment. Some time has obviously transpired. But what we do know is that David is still tending the sheep. So even though his dad and his bros saw Samuel anoint him, knew that he had some important job ahead of him, they still send him back to the sheep. All right, so what? Samuel anointed you. Get back out with the herds. But even though this happened, it was still part of God's plan. For the wilderness was the perfect training ground for a king after God's own heart. On our trip to Israel, we got to actually visit the hillsides of Bethlehem. And I'm going to ask Corey to pull up a slide here, that I, uh, a picture that I took of the hillsides of Bethlehem, the exact ones where David would have actually been in this vicinity keeping watch over the sheep. And so here you see me on the left. On the right-hand side, you will see the hillside. On the left is the modern city of Bethlehem. Right behind where I'm standing, behind the photographer from, from that angle actually, there's caves that are known as the shepherd's caves, where the shepherds actually lived in. And in the background, you'll notice the hillside, you'll see some grass, but you'll also see all of the rocks. It's a very rocky, stony sort of ground. And the grass is nice and green because this was in fact one of the, the lushest times of year and they had more rain than normal, so it was actually very abundant. And so this is the first, the first picture to give you an idea of what the hillsides would have looked like that bet of the vicinity of Bethlehem. You can go to the next slide, Corey. And uh, if you look and squint your eyes right to the, the middle of this picture and look really closely, there's actually sheep in the middle. Now I know they actually blend in with the rocks, but there's, there's a flock of sheep right there in the middle. And so here we see that the pastime of David shepherding the sheep and the hillsides around Bethlehem, it's still going on to this very day. And this gives you an idea of what it looked like. So here out in the, the wilderness, out in the rocks with the sheep, this is where David honed his skills. This is where he learned to play the harp. This is where he learned so many valuable skills that would serve him well as king. If you go to the next slide, this picture will show you a bit more of a close-up of an actual modern-day shepherd leading his flock of sheep along a hillside. And as you can see, it's not quite as green. This picture was actually taken in Jordan. The, the wilderness, however, of Jordan is actually what it would have looked like most likely most of the time around Bethlehem in David's day because it was truly a wilderness area. And so can you imagine just being out there day in, day out in that kind of terrain with your only companion being sheep? So you've got two choices. You learn to know those sheep really well, and you can talk to yourself, or you can talk to God. Well, I guess three choices. And I think David did all of those. He learned to commune with God his Father. He learned those sheep really well. But he also learned how to sing, worship, praise to God, and he honed those skills by playing his harp. And so here we see David's training ground. This is where everything was brought together by God for the purpose of forming him as king. 
We also know that this is where his skills as a warrior were first learned. With a sling in his hand, a staff at his side, when the the bear and the lions came to attack the sheep, this is where his bravery was tested. Would he fight for his sheep or would he run the other way? And so here we see that God is using the wasteland and tending the sheep to form the character of his future king. Now, tending sheep in the wasteland doesn't seem terribly exciting to us, does it? And if you were to say, I'm going to select the perfect training ground for a future king, this probably wouldn't be on the top of your list. But we see in scripture that God often uses time in the wilderness to train and prepare people for service to him. We see that for Moses, we see that for John the Baptist, and even the Lord Jesus spent time in the wilderness before beginning their respective ministries. And so it was for David. But now I want you to consider, if David had not learned the lessons of the wilderness, would he have been ready to become king? For if David had not been a caring shepherd to his sheep, would he have been a caring king towards his people? If David had run when the sheep were under attack from the wild animals, would he have had the courage to face Goliath? You see, the time with the sheep in the wilderness taught David vital things that he could not have learned anywhere else. And now it was probably between David's anointing and being called to serve King Saul with music in his court, it's probably in this period that David killed both a lion and a bear. And for this reason, he was recognized by Saul's attendant as not only a skilled musician, but also as a brave man and a warrior. However, the most telling phrase in his description of David is this, And the Lord is with him. The same spirit that had left King Saul was now abiding upon David and doing a great work within him. And in the end, what set David apart from Saul was that David wasn't after the throne. David was after God's heart. Do you see the difference in the pursuit? Saul was pursuing his own fame, his own glory. He was pursuing the throne, and Samuel even recognized that when it was taken from him, he would be at risk of his own life because he knew that Saul's anger, he could actually kill Samuel. He was wanting to hold on to his throne at all cost, no matter what it took. And later on, we see to what depths he stoops. He he kills high priests of the Lord in order to hold on to his throne. And we see in his madness, Saul continues to do whatever it takes to hold on to power. But David was not like that. David was not pursuing power, his own fame, or his own glory. He was pursuing the Lord's heart, the Lord's fame, and the Lord's glory. And even when he fought Goliath, He said it was for the Lord. The Lord will do this. The Lord will give you into my hand. And so we see a difference right from the very beginning. David wasn't pursuing the throne. He was pursuing God. And this would prove pivotal in the years to come. For though David had already been anointed as king, he would have to yet patiently endure many years of trial and testing before actually sitting on that throne. But it was in this time that God shaped David. And this is still how God works in shaping us today. Of course, we all want to skip the wilderness, right? We don't want to have to go into the wilderness. We don't have to spend the hours toiling. We don't want to have to be pursued by a king who's a maniac trying to kill us. We don't want to have to deal with any of that. We want to skip the wilderness. We want to go straight to the throne. But God doesn't work that way. For it is in the wilderness of mundane tasks 
It is in the wilderness of trials and testing that he forges our character and shapes our heart for future service to him. Shepherding in the wilderness was not an occupation for a king, but yet David did it well and with enthusiasm. It was he who wrote Psalm 100 where he said, Serve the Lord with gladness. And then he says at the end of it, For we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. You see his shepherd's heart coming out. And even in the wilderness with the sheep, he served the Lord with gladness. Do you serve the Lord with gladness in the mundane tasks of your life? The grind of the nine to five? Do you serve the Lord with enthusiasm, with gladness? Are you serving well? Let me ask you, what wilderness are you in today? What seemingly small or mundane task have you been assigned? Do it well. Do it with enthusiasm. Don't be too proud to tend sheep. Don't get caught up on only doing grand or important things for God and lose sight of what he's assigned to you right now today. Do you have a role in the church that, so, that no one else seems to notice? That no one else even knows that you do? Do you have some role? Do you spend time praying for a ministry that no one even knows that you're doing it, but you know the Lord has asked you to do that? Are you doing it well? Are you doing it diligently? Are you doing it with enthusiasm? At camp, there's all sorts of jobs, from scrubbing toilets to clearing brush, that no one thinks about as important. And yet when we serve the Lord, no matter what it is, great or small, He sees, He knows, and He is foraging us for greater things yet to come. As Jesus said in his parable in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21, the master replies to the servant, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You see, the reality is that for many people, God has not yet granted them the throne because they have not yet learned the lessons of the wilderness. God has not placed them in a position of greater influence because they have not yet made use of the smaller areas of influence that he has already given them. They think, I'll engage when it's a big job. God says, what are you going to do with the little job? Oh, that's not important, Lord. Well then, stay there until you learn that lesson. Then I'll give you something more. Do you think that God will send someone halfway around the world as a missionary to tell people about him if they can't be bothered to go halfway across town to talk to him, talk to a friend about him? Do you think someone is going to make, do you think God is going to make someone a preacher to the public if they're not interested in talking about him in private conversation? You see, I believe that we would do well to stop asking God for greater opportunities to serve and instead start praying and asking God to help us take hold of the opportunities that he has already given us. Do you believe that God has given you opportunities? If you don't, I want to challenge you today. Ask God to open your eyes to the opportunities that he has already presented you with. Because I guarantee you that they are there. If you pray and say, Lord, open my eyes, help me to see the small opportunities you've already given me, and then give me the the obedience, the faith, the strength to just obey in the small thing, God will show you something amazing today. Of that I am convinced. For it is when we are faithful in the little things, God will present us with greater things. But remember, great or small, it is always for His glory. 
And David had learned the lessons of the wilderness well, and when the time was right, God presented him with a new opportunity to serve King Saul with music in the palace of the king, from the wilderness to the palace, because he had learned the lessons well. And in fact, David played so well that we are told Saul even liked David so much that he asked his father's permission for David to stay with him indefinitely. And so here we see the progression. David is learning one step at a time, faithfulness in the little things, and God will lead us into greater things for his glory and for his fame. And this is our desire today for us as well. May we be faithful in the small things. If you're teaching Sunday school, be faithful, do it well, do it with enthusiasm. If you're serving in some ministry outside of the church, do it well, do it with enthusiasm. It doesn't matter what it is. And if you're not engaged in some way, start today with a small thing and ask the Lord to show you what that is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is constantly, constantly working on us. You never leave us alone. You're always wanting to train us, to equip us for further use, for your service, and for your glory. And so Lord, for those of us here today who may be feeling like we're like David, stuck in the wilderness, I pray God that you would help us to be faithful with what you've asked us to do in the small things. To be faithful to do it well and with enthusiasm, knowing that you may be teaching us and shaping us for something greater in the future. And Lord, I pray for those who this morning perhaps identify with the position of King Saul, where they know that they have strayed from you and they're rebelling. And they, they recognize that your, your hand is against them, where your hand is saying, turn back to me. Father, I pray that you would show that to them, that they would throw themselves on your mercy and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I confess. Forgive me, Lord, restore me. We know that you're ready and willing to do that, and we pray that you would do so by your Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that your word would do its work within us. Help us to remember it as we go into the week, and help us to be faithful as we live for you. In Jesus' name.